Okay, turn over to Haggai chapter 2. Say I'm loving studying Haggai. So it's overwhelming how rich it is that I'm trying to squeeze it into a four-part Advent series. There's just so much in there, more than I even knew uh, before, and so it's really been a blessing to me. Um, so let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll turn to God's Word in Haggai chapter two. Our God of the covenant, uh, in you there is no variation or shadow due to change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never forget uh, one word of all of your promises. Though time and seasons and even generations may pass for us where we live in forgetfulness, you are a remembering God. So, Lord, help us to trust you and to live lives rooted in your covenant faithfulness. By your spirit, will you strengthen us? Will you galvanize us against uh, despondency and hopelessness? And even when we can't see or understand the appearances of life, may we learn to rest in you and to look to Christ as we labor to build your holy temple. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The second prophecy delivered through Haggai the prophet. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, speaking, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. Be seated. Uh, last week we saw the Lord confront the remnant of Judah um, over their apathy, over their procrastination. They're the, the post-exilic procrastinators. They are not. They're failing to build the temple, um, and they're they're uh, falling into distraction. Uh, they should have been building the temple. Instead, they're building their own houses and their own lives. Um, And that's the first of four prophecies in Haggai. The second prophecy, I would say, is less a rebuke and more of an encouragement. People are, in this passage, still dealing with apathy, 
But this time its source is, is not distraction as in the first one, but despondency, uh, hopelessness. Sometimes, as God's people, we need that kick in the pants like the first uh, pr- prophecy. Um, you need to get your priorities straight and you, you, you're about your own life and you need to be about Christ and his kingdom. Other times, we need something more like this second word. Uh, we get it, we're working on on building the Lord's house, but appearances have gotten the better of us. So as we look at this prophecy and its fulfillment, uh, we'll see that we're called to the, we, we as New Testament Christians are also called to the building up of this same temple that these people are building. And we likewise, like them, can lose sight of who the chief architect is and his plan to bring about his glory. But as we see um, God's faithfulness in history, in the, in the rear view, and as we look forward in the trajectory of God's temple and his presence with his people for his glory, um, as we see that, our own drooping shoulders should be lifted um, to do the work that he's called us, even despite sometimes there being discouraging appearances. So this second prophecy begins addressing the issue of despondency or hopelessness uh, in verse 3. So in verse 1, we see that this prophetic word came in the second year of Darius the king, and, and actually they've been able to figure out the meshing of calendars. So we know the exact date is October 17th, 520 B.C. Um, and we get a sense of here of, of the challenges that's fa- that are facing God's people in verse 3. God says to them, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So their hopelessness, the issue God is addressing is their hopelessness out of an interpretation of appearances. God knows our hearts better than we do. And he identifies in them that, that and speak this word to them of encouragement to strengthen them in hopelessness. Um, It was evident early on in the the building of this new temple that the glory of this temple would be uh, diminutive compared to Solomon's temple. Um, I like the the way Calvin said it It was funny. He's like, we we feel like we're building a shed. (laughs) And and this was already actually evident by just the mere uh, footprint of the foundation that had been laid, I think, 16 years prior. We read about in Ezra 3, uh, 10 through 13, they laid the foundations of the t- new temple. They're worshiping. And then it says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, Solomon's temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. This new one is a shed. It doesn't look good. It's not going to live up to the standard of Solomon's temple and its glory. That's the source of the despondency. And and we have to remember in God's economy, appearances are rarely a reliable metric for success or glory. And, And appearances should never be our driving motivation. It's in this case what they can't see that is ultimately glorious. Um, Zechariah 4.10 
Zechariah Haggai's compatriot um, prophet after promising that Zerubbabel who laid the foundations would then complete the temple. We read this in in Zechariah 4.10. For whoever has despised the day of small beginnings shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So initially we should be cautious about judging the relative glory of what God is doing based solely on appearances. We can easily become discouraged and impatient and apathetic based on the relative perceived success of a project or mission. As we'll see, God's plans for uh, this temple will actually far surpass anything these people could have even, I think, imagined after hearing this prophecy. So the the danger, the issue here is is apathy, despondency, hopelessness. Uh, God combats this in this passage in two ways. First, by pointing them back to his covenant promises. And then second, by pointing them ahead to the covenant fulfillment. So looking back on God's covenant promises. um, God here, he gives two commands in verse 4 and verse 5. Be strong and fear not. Verse 4, be now strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord. And then again at the end of verse 5, fear not. These two commands are frequent in the Bible, um, and very often they go together. Be strong, fear not. And In fact, fear not is the most frequent command in the Bible, uh, one for every day of the year, 365 Commands to fear not. A couple examples. Joshua 1.9. Obviously, as they're going into the promised land, I have, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then in Zechariah 8, uh, verse 9. Again, a parallel passage to our own. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. So I noticed as I read through, I looked up these lists of these commands to be strong, to be not afraid. And as I read through them, I noticed they're very frequently about obedience. Be strong to do something the Lord is calling you to do. Um, because obedience faces opposition. The enemy will uh, employ distraction, as we saw last week. He'll employ hopelessness, as we see in this passage. Uh, he'll employ temptation, intimidation, as we see in, in Ezra. Um, but we must be strong. We must be courageous to face this opposition, to do what the Lord is calling us to do. Um, but this is not, you know, be strong is not a command like, Buck up, buttercup. In fact, he supplies what he commands. Namely, he supplies us with himself, his own presence, and his own covenant faithfulness. Um, Alec Matier says really helpfully here, uh, the, the Lord's rejoinder to his people's despondency is to turn their minds from what they think to be true of themselves we cannot match the past. We cannot achieve the pres- in the present to what is true about him. 
They say, we, the Lord says, I, my spirit. They are speaking and he is speaking. Three times over he calls their attention to his speaking to them. To which will they listen? To themselves or to the Lord? He says, the key to tackling despondency is found here. Stop listening to ourselves and start listening to him and his word of promise. Here the Lord spoke to them of his sufficiency. I am with you. He offers them only his presence, for in him they have all they need. So true strength to take on a daunting obedience or to take on a call with a less than clear or optimistic appearances um, comes not from within, but from without, from the Lord. Strength comes from the Lord. That's why God says of Zerubbabel, and I quoted this last week um, in Zechariah 4, 6, uh, 4, 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the temple will be built. Be strong, be strong in me. In verse 4, uh, Yahweh repeats and fills out that great promise that we looked at last week um, from chapter 1, verse 13, where he said, I am with you. I am with you. In verse 4, work. There's another command. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And last week we saw there was an implicit connection to the, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant on Sinai that God made with his people. And in this passage, that in, implicit um, connection is made explicit in verse 5. According to the covenant, he says, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. A few examples from Exodus um, from the covenant at Sinai, uh, Exodus 25.8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's God's plan, to dwell in their midst. Exodus 29.45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Then again in Exodus 33, uh, 13 through 17, this here Moses is speaking to God and he's, he's wondering, how, how am I going to know? And he says, he says, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do, bring, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that you are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing I have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. So God promised when he came out of Exodus, I will be with you. That's the covenant promise. I will be your God and you will be 
my people. And he's saying to these people, think back to that promise. Don't operate on, on the assumption that this is a terrible temple and it's never going to work out. Operate on my covenant word, and my covenant promise. We, we often become despondent because of our own covenant forgetfulness. We, we need hope. Hope propels us forward. God doesn't call us to trudge through the muck of life hopelessly without and aimlessly. He calls us to proceed with a rightly anchored hope, a, a hope with the proper object. So God is pointing them back and he points us back as well to his covenant faithfulness. Second, he encourages the despondent by uh, looking forward, calling us to look forward to covenant fulfillment. In verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Um, he says he will shake five things. Heavens, earth, sea, dry land, and the nations. Um, just as a side note, I found David Schrock's article it's entitled, I Will Shake the Earth, Reading Haggai in Canonical Context. I'll email it to you if you want. Um, this would be very helpful as I work through this. Also, uh, G.K. Beale's uh, the temple and the church's mission should be very helpful. So I'm, I'm borrowing a lot from these these men as I try to sort out what this means. The shaking of the earth. Um, shaking seems to be a, a Hebrew or Eastern idiom of sorts, and it can mean a lot of things in, in the Bible. The Hebrew word can mean just literally like an earthquake, the shaking of the earth. Um, it can mean... More figuratively, the shaking of the mountains or the, the thresholds or the pillars of the earth it can refer uh, to judgment and the downfall of nations and kingdoms. So it can have a very literal meaning in one place, uh, an earthquake, or in another place, a more apocalyptic and figurative meaning in another. Um, so our text here gives us some strong hints about about what he means by the shaking of the heavens and the earth here. Um, notice, he says, and this is important in verse 6, yet once more, yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Uh, I think any Hebrew would naturally, their mind would make the connection to Mount Sinai. Especially since he just talked about the covenant he made with them at Sinai. So I think God's mind is on Sinai here as he talks about shake and he's going to do it again. So uh, Exodus 19, we read uh, 16 through 18. <clears throat> on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. That's that word there. Trembled the shaking of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Yet again, I will shake. And this time, he says, heaven, earth, sea, and land 
which suggests comprehensiveness. This new shaking will not be localized tremors. It will be universal. It will be expansive and cosmic. So in light of the Sinai context, where the first shaking represented the first covenant, I believe the second shaking may very well be an allusion to the new covenant. He says, I will shake the earth again, but not just the earth, not, not just Israel, but the whole world. The whole cosmos will shake and it will be expansive. And this, this expansiveness is made more explicit in verse 7. It will be also an international affair, uh, a multinational uh, shakeup. In verse 7, and I will shake all nations, not just Israel, all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So the the former glory of the temple, Solomon's temple, with its grandeur, its beauty, its wealth, um, and those treasures stood out in the minds of the older saints. That's why they wept. It's not going to live up. And it was torn down and the precious artifacts hauled away. And God says, all the silver and gold in this whole wide world are mine, and I will bring back the wealth of of not only one nation, of of the nation of Israel, but of all nations. I will fill this house with my glory. Um, This promise saw some literal fulfillment in the coming years. In Ezra 6, we read that um, Darius decreed that the cost of the temple should be paid from the royal revenue. And he says in in verse 9, also uh, of Ezra 6, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priest of Jerusalem requires. So even the the kingdom of Persia is going to contribute riches and wealth to this new temple. Then again in Ezra 7, Artaxerxes sends back gold and silver for the house and again buys bulls and rams um, and he sends back the vessels of the house of God. So that's some some meager fulfillment of this prophecy of the riches coming in. Some there's debated. Calvin is vehemently against this idea. Some think it's partially uh, legitimate. But that Herod's temple, uh, that his beautification project is the partial fulfillment of this, that under Roman rule, the, the riches are coming in. But um, if these partial fulfillments represent the, the totality of the fulfillment of this prophecy, uh, I feel let down. I'm disappointed. Uh, especially considering the evils that took place on the Temple Mount under Herod and, and the corruption of the priesthood at that time. It seems that God's presence and His glory never rested on this temple in fullness. These fulfillments, I think, are especially disappointing in light of the ultimate promise in this passage in verse 9 that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So if we're familiar with the history, we're left wondering, how so? 
Before we get to the question of how so, uh, we should remember that, that these people listening to these prophecies did not have the same historical vantage as we do. All they know is, is the promise of God. He will do this. He will bring glory into his temple. Appearances are less than optimistic now, but the future glory of this, this shed is going to be surpass the glory of Solomon's temple. God said he would do that. And there will be peace in that place. Peace had not been known since, since the days of Solomon in his temple. And God would bring peace. Anthony Pedersen says the idea of peace or shalom is wholeness or well-being, prosperity, and right relationships. So no longer will the people of God be unsettled, captives in their own country, um, disdained from every side. There will be peace, peace with man, peace with God, and the peace which passes understanding. So you see God's tactic here. He propels them forward with a sure hope of a future covenant fulfillment, and it's grounded in, in the covenant promises and faithfulness of the past. Now, our point of reference is not uh, the Mosaic Covenant anymore. Our point of reference is the New Covenant. But the principle remains true and, and the same. If you're feeling despondent or hopeless, if appearances uh, have you questioning whether it's worthy to press on building the temple of God, the Lord's house, then let me rebuke you in love for the sin of covenant forgetfulness. Let me encourage you then with the certain hope that God will bring to completion what he's started, despite how it may appear. Now, how, how does God actually work out these covenant promises? How, how is he even working out these promises now? Again, I'll just borrow from um, David Schrock, steal his title, that we need to have a canonical reading of Haggai. We can't just read it by itself. We have to read it in light of the whole of Scripture because Scripture interprets Scripture. So we have to understand Christ and his people are the temple, are the fulfillment of the temple, reading canonically. So from our vantage in history, we look back on that second temple and its glory never gets better than those unsatisfying fulfillments that I mentioned earlier. And moreover, of course, in 70 AD, this temple is raised by the Roman uh, commander Titus and is never rebuilt. So what are we to make of this in light of the promises that God said he would make it glorious? And what we find in the New Testament, the New Testament gives us very clear answers what we find is that the glory of the temple far surpasses, I think, even the wildest imaginations of this first audience. They couldn't have known what God was going to do. So first, let's just look at this theme of, of shaking, once again, from a New Testament perspective. Hebrews 12 is the obvious place to go. If you want to turn there, we'll be there for a moment. Hebrews 12 uh, includes a, a reference directly to our passage, Haggai 2, verse 6. 
And just like Haggai does, he connects the shaking of the earth with the shaking of Mount Sinai. So Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. At that time, meaning at Sinai. But now he has promised yet once more and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's the reference. It's a it's a a kind of reference that includes an interpretation. And I'm not just going to shake the earth, but I'm going to shake the heavens as well. So so Hebrews here it connects uh, the shaking of the of Sinai to another shaking, the new covenant. That is a cosmic and an eschatological shaking. Um, it goes on in verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there, there's a purifying effect here, he says in, in uh, Hebrews 12, that the shaking will purify that and separate that which is permanent from that which is impermanent, the, the created order from the spiritual. It's like the shaking of, of the basket that allows the chaff to blow away and the grain to remain, or the shaking of, of, of the pan that allows the gold to remain. Uh, David Schrock here, he has a helpful interpretation. He says, Haggai 2.6, interpreting the passage uh, to mean that the things which are shakeable, i.e. all creation, are being removed, just as the unshakable things, i.e. what Christ has brought about by his resurrection and new creation, are now being established. Importantly, he says in verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, the unshakable kingdom is not something future, it is something present, something Christ's people are already receiving. Said more precisely, the future unshakable kingdom has entered into the shakable present through the person of Christ, now perfected and made indestructible through his resurrection. Uh, in other words, what we see is Hebrews 12 is using Haggai as a, as a cosmic eschatological fulfillment of, of, about the prophecies about the temple and applying them to Christ and his kingdom. That's how they're being fulfilled. By the way, I recognize this is a little dense, <laughs> challenging um, but this is how the glory of the temple comes to fruition. So even if we don't get it all, we can get a glimpse of what God is doing in his grand uh, scheme here. So um, it's no surprise to us that Christ in the new covenant is the fulfillment of the temple. We know that. Um, I, I find the Lord's little comment striking in verse 9 of Haggai uh, 2. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Uh, we, we use language like Solomon's temple, the second temple. Um, some people talk about a third temple. Uh, and we could add in the tabernacle. There, there's all these temples. But to Yahweh, the, the, 
the Solomon's temple, the second temple, it's a temple. Notice he says that the glory of this house shall be greater than the former. To take it a step further, Jesus, in his comments, he links the temple of his own body with the second temple. He says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up. There's really only one temple. In the New Testament, there are three things spoken of as the fulfillment of the temple. Um, Really, it's all Christ. Christ is the first thing that's spoken of as the temple. But it's also us in Christ as the spiritual temple. So the church is the temple. And then it is us with Christ in the final temple, in the new heavens and the new earth. So the three things are Christ, his people, and the new heavens and the new earth. So it's not a physical place that makes something the temple, but it's the presence of God with his people who there worship him that makes something the temple. This is really the essence of the temple and the temple theme throughout the Bible. It's one that begins in Eden, where God with us walked in the cool of the the day, and it will end with us with him as his people in the new heavens and the new earth, as we see in Revelation 21. 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So we do not yet have Christ in in the fullness that we, we will enjoy Him on that day. But we have the fullness of Christ now. We have come to the temple. We're not, don't get to enjoy it to the fullness as we will, but we enjoy Christ in his fullness. Hebrews 12 goes on here, if you still have a finger there. Um, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's referring to Mount Sinai. For they could not endure the order that was given. If a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, So this is this festal gathering that he talks about here, that we've already come to Mount, Mount Zion, this great assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, united by the blood of the mediator of the new covenant. Um, That represents the height uh, of worship in spirit and in truth. In that sense, we've come to the temple in Christ. And it's those saints, the firstborn enrolled in heaven, that are the fulfillment of what I think is the treasures of the nations that Haggai talks about. The treasures. Uh, Calvin here helpfully says when when he speaks of uh, silver and gold in verses 7 and 8, the prophet speaks of the spiritual ornaments of the temple. So we are... 
the treasures of the nations. We in our, our offerings of praise are those spiritual ornaments. Ephesians speaks this way of the redeemed saints as the spoils of war, the treasures, the precious gifts that Christ gives. Um, Ephesians 4, 7 and 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Uh, Ephesians 2 calls the church the temple. Ephesians 2, 8 through 22. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, or the nations, have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And it is this this spiritual temple, singular, in one sense the same temple they were building, that we are called to build in the new covenant. That's what we saw playing out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth as we went through Acts. The the streaming of the nations to Mount Zion, to to Christ and to his saints, the, the filling of the holy temple with the spiritual ornaments of praise. Finally, and I'll close here, that it is the same context that we find the promise of peace and Zion coming to fruition. Um, in the preceding verses to the ones we just read in Ephesians, Paul says in 2, 14 through 17, For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, a peace with man, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, peace with God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So here's here's the advent application as I see it. The men who are, are called by Haggai to build the prop, uh, build the temple, I think they would be blown away to know the shocking glory that they, they were pointed toward as they built this temple. That, that they, they, this temple was pointing forward to the actual incarnation of God. That God would be with us to such a degree of intimacy and fellowship that he would dwell among us and that we would behold his glory, the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's why Haggai is written. 
to point us to Christ, the, the true temple. And this, this is a temple glory that outshines all hopelessness. I want to uh, close with a prayer. Um, this isn't the case in all of the books, but in Haggai, at least I've found in several others that actually Calvin has prayers in his commentary. And I've been found them very rich. I think I'll collect them and give you a copy after I'm all all done here. But this is one of them um, I find to be especially fitting. So if you pray with me, this one's from actually Haggai 1, 1 through 4. Grant, Almighty God, that as we must carry on a warfare in this world, and that is, as it is thy will to try us with many contests, O grant that we may never faint, however extreme may be the trials which we shall have to endure, as thou hast favored us with so great an honor as to make us the framers and builders of thy spiritual temple. May every one of us present and consecrate himself wholly to thee, and inasmuch as each of us has received some peculiar gift, may we strive to employ it in the building of this temple, so that thou mayest be worshipped among us perpetually, and especially may each of us offer himself wholly as a spiritual sacrifice to thee, until we shall at length be renewed in thine image and be received into a full participation of that glory which has been attained for us by the blood of thy only begotten Son. Amen.